This evening, we continue our lectureship, which is entitled, Follow the Lamb Wherever He Goes. This, king, this theme comes from Revelation, the 14th chapter, where it speaks in verse 1 of those who were standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, who had the Lamb's name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And these are the ones who had been purchased or redeemed from the earth, as we see in verse 3 of Revelation 14. And then in verse 4 of Revelation 14, we see these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So following the Lamb wherever He goes is a characteristic and description of those who are purchased and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's a description of those who belong to the Lamb, who belong to Christ and are faithful to Him. So it is a description of Christians. It is to be a description of you and me, those who are striving to serve the Lord. We are to be followers of the Lamb wherever he goes. In 1 Peter, the second chapter, beginning in verse 20, it says, For what credit is it if when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently? But if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So just as Christ suffered for us, we must be willing to suffer for Him and to suffer for the good of others. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing? Are we willing to suffer and sacrifice as Christ suffered for us? We all need to ask ourselves, are you willing to suffer for Christ and to suffer for others like Christ suffered for us? That's a question we're going to ask and explore further as we get further into the lesson this evening. When we follow in the footsteps of someone, this means that we do what they do or do what they did. So when we talk about those who are following the Lamb or following in the steps of Jesus, we're talking about those who are striving to do what Jesus did, to live the way that He lived. And so it's important, it's really essential that we strive to pattern our lives the way that Jesus lived when He was on this earth. Ten lectures have been scheduled this year in our lectureship on following the Lamb wherever He goes. Tonight's lecture is the seventh lecture in the series. We've had six excellent lectures so far. You can see those in yellow uh, on the screen. We have four more. We have tonight's lecture, which is on following Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. That will be our subject tonight. And then we will have three more lectures. Stephen Lord will present a lesson on following Jesus to the cross. Chuck Wood will present a lecture on following Jesus out of the tomb. And then Bill Deason will uh, conclude, bring our lectureship to a close with a lectureship on following Jesus into glory. The account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, in John 18, verse 1, simply states that Jesus and His disciples, after crossing the brook Kidron, or the Kidron Valley, entered a garden. Then it immediately records the betrayal by Judas in verses 2 through 11 of that chapter and does not record what occurred in the garden prior to the betrayal of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke provide us with the details. They provide us with the details of what occurred in the garden of Gethsemane prior to the betrayal of Jesus. And in our study this evening, we will be looking into each of these accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to get a full picture of what occurred in the garden and take from these accounts the lessons that we can learn and that we should apply to our lives as we strive to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We will start by reading Matthew's account, but before we do that, let's review a few of the events that have occurred just prior to Jesus and His disciples coming to the garden. 
First of all, on Friday, on the Friday prior to the Friday that Jesus was crucified, um, Jesus arrives in Bethany. Uh, Bethany was a village that was a short distance east of Jerusalem on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, where Jesus lodged during that last week before his crucifixion. On Sunday of the week that Jesus was crucified, we read of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then on Monday, we read of Jesus cleansing the temple, uh, where he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And then on Tuesday of that week that he was crucified, we read of Jesus having discussions with, with the scribes who were questioning his authority. And then with the Pharisees who asked him about paying tribute to Caesar. And then to, with the Sadducees who were questioning the resurrection. And also on that Tuesday, he presents parables, several parables, the parables of the two sons, the parable of the vineyard, the parable of the wedding garment, parable of the 10 virgins and the talents. And then we see Jesus discussing with his disciples the fall of Jerusalem and his second coming. And then on Tuesday night, this is Tuesday night before Jesus was crucified on Friday, we see Judas who is plotting with the chief priest to betray Jesus. And this was two days prior to the Passover. We see that in Matthew 26 verse 2 and Mark 14 verse 1. And so the Passover was to be observed on Thursday of that week. And so this was on Tuesday, two days prior to the Passover. And on Thursday afternoon, we read of the preparation for the Passover meal. This is when the disciples asked Jesus where they should prepare to eat the Passover. And Jesus tells them to go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And so that's exactly what they do. And so they end up. Uh, meeting in the upper room in the house of this man to eat the Passover meal. And so they do that on Thursday night and also while in the upper room, this is when Jesus, as we see in John the 13th chapter, Jesus washes the disciples of the feet. And Eric gave an excellent lecture on that last month on the lessons we learn of how we are to serve one another, just as Jesus gave us the example to serve others. And then on that same occasion, we see that G Jesus points out who will be his betrayer, that Judas will betray him. Also on Thursday night, the disciples are warned of falling away. We see in Matthew 26 and verse 31 that it says, you will all fall away, fall away because of me this night. And then also here on this occasion in the upper room on Thursday night, the Lord's Supper is instituted by Jesus. And then in John the 14th chapter, also on this occasion, really John 14 through 17 are, are, are things that Jesus said on this occasion in the upper room. And, um, and so in John the 14th chapter, we see that he starts giving, he takes advantage of this opportunity. This is what, probably the last time that Jesus will have the opportunity to speak at length with his disciples before his crucifixion. And so he gives them instruction. He gives them uh, words of warning and encouragement. And in John 14, verse 2, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And in 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then John 14, verse 26, we see that he says, the Father will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus has said to them. And then in John the 15th chapter, on this same occasion in the upper room, uh, Jesus presents the parable of the vine and the branches to them. He tells them that they were to bear much fruit. And he tells his disciples that they were to love one another. And in John 15 verse 20, he tells the disciples that they would per be persecuted as he was persecuted. And then in John the 16th chapter, on this same occasion, Jesus gives more instruction and words of encouragement. He tells his disciples that they will be outcast from the synagogue by those who know not the Father. And he, he, he again tells them that when he departs, the Holy Spirit will be sent to them to guide them into all the truth. And then he tells them that he will die and then be raised and then will go to the Father from whence he came. And in John 16, verse 33, he says, In me you have peace. In the world, tribulation. Take courage, I have overcome the world. 
And then in John the 17th chapter, on this same occasion in the upper room, on this Thursday night, Jesus prays unto the Father before his disciples on behalf of his disciples. He prays that the Son and the Father be glorified with the glory they had before the world was in existence. He prays to keep the disciples in the Father's name and that they be one even as the Son and Father are one. He prays to keep them from the evil one, to sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And that they and those who believe in me through their word may be one and in the Father and Son who are one. And he prays that they may be perfected in unity and the world will know that the Father loves them just as he loves the Son. And then we see in Matthew 26, verse 30, Mark 14, 26, and Luke 22, 39, that they sing a hymn, and then they depart and go to the Mount of Olives. And then we see Jesus and his disciples entering the Garden of Gethsemane. We see this in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, Mark 14, 32 through 42, and Luke 22, 39 through 46. We're going to start tonight by reading Matthew's account in Matthew, the 26th chapter, beginning in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go, while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. The Garden of Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives. You can see it on the map of, of the city of the Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. Oh, in the upper right-hand side, uh, it was on the northeastern side of the city, just east of the temple. Uh, it's the small green polygon that's within that blue oval that I've put up there. But you can see where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. Both Matthew and Mark use the Greek word for garden that means a spot or a place and evidently denotes a small enclosure or field. John wrote that it was across the brook Kidron. And Gethsemane is the Greek form of a Hebrew word meaning oil press. This enclosure was an olive orchard with an oil press in it. And it was apparently a secluded spot that offered the privacy that Jesus desired on this occasion. So in the daylight, the garden was a beautiful place. Uh, this picture here is a, a modern day picture that gives us an idea of what the garden may have looked like at the time of Jesus. But on this occasion, as Jesus and his disciples enter the garden at night, it is as the song says, a night with ebon pinion, brooded o'er the veil. It is a night with darkness, like the dark wings of a hovering bird covering the garden and shrouding it in sorrow and desperation. In Mark 14, beginning in verse 32, it says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. The disciples were divided into two groups. Eight were apparently left near the gate. The other three, Peter, James, and John, 
came further into the garden with Jesus. As we read about this, this is a, a heart-wrenching scene. It says, Jesus began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to Peter, James, and John, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. The time is at hand. The enormous weight of what is about to happen is weighing heavily upon Jesus as he is deeply distressed and sorrowful, as it says here. We need to remember that these events in Gethsemane are occurring late Thursday night before Jesus is to be crucified Friday morning. He is about to be betrayed in the pre-dawn pre hours Friday morning, tried before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, then tried before Pilate and Herod, and then he would be sentenced to be crucified, tortured, and scorned by being whipped, beaten, spat upon, and mocked, and then led to Golgotha and crucified the third hour, which is 9 a.m. Friday morning. So these events in Gethsemane are occurring just hours before he's going to go all, through all these things and be crucified. And so Jesus, who is God and man, is only a few hours away from the horrific event that's required to reconcile man back to God which was planned and foretold by God way back in the beginning when he placed a curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3 and verse 15 after the serpent had tempted Eve to sin and both Adam and Eve had sinned. And we see that Jesus must perform the task that only he can perform. There's nobody else that can perform this task of paying the penalty for our sins. Jesus must perform the task that only he can perform to place a death blow upon Satan as he pays the price for all man's sin by being crucified on the cross. No other in heaven or on earth could do it. In Mark the 14th chapter beginning in verse 35 it says he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if, that if it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And in Matthew 26 and verse 39, it says that he fell on his face and prayed. And in Luke, the 22nd chapter, beginning in verse 41, it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus was so troubled and deeply distressed and in such agony that Luke says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It could be that Luke is emphasizing the great anguish that Jesus was going through by simply comparing the profuse sweating to great drops of blood. Our Luke, being a physician, could be describing a medical condition known today as hematohydrosis or hematidrosis, in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood. This occurs under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. And certainly Jesus was under extreme stress, emotional and physical stress at this time. Jesus was God. He was deity. But he was also man with flesh and blood just like you and me. We're not told all that was going through Jesus' mind at this time to cause this deep distress and agony that he was going through. Some emphasize the physical suffering that he was about to endure as the source of his agony, while others emphasize the spiritual suffering that he was about to endure as he bears the sins of all mankind, which causes him for the first time to be separated from his Father. I believe Jesus, being both God and man, could be affected by both. The terrible, terrible physical suffering he is about to endure and the guilt 
of sin that he must bear for all mankind, which will separate him from his father, have put him in a state of agony that none of us can fully understand. We can't fully understand what Jesus was going through, but he was in extreme agony, extreme agony and suffering at this time. Being God, Christ knew all that was going to happen to him. We see that in John 18 and verse 4. He knew everything that was about to happen to him. He knew what was coming. He knew he was about to undergo several trials and where all the witnesses against him would lie and bear false witness against him. He knew all his disciples would forsake him and would be scattered as he had already foretold. He knew he would be spat upon and scourged and beaten nearly to the point of death, even before he was taken to be crucified. He knew the prophetic words of Isaiah, that he would be beaten so badly that he would be disfigured or marred beyond that of any man and beyond human likeness. We see that in Isaiah 52 and verse 14. He knew he was about to be crucified, which was the most painful and torturous method of execution ever devised and was used on the most despised and wicked people. The pain and suffering felt by one who was crucified was so intense and terrible that the Romans created a new word for it. It was excruciere to describe the terrible pain. This word means as painful as a crucifixion or out of the cross, and it is the root of our word excruciating. So they formed their own word to describe the amount of pain that one went through as they were on the cross, as they were crucified on the cross. And it is our word excruciating, it is excruciating pain. Jesus knew in detail the torture and extreme pain and suffering he was about to go through. And being a man and knowing he was about to endure all these things brought extreme anguish, distress, and agony. But it seems safe to say that the cause of his deep distress and agony went beyond just the physical suffering he was about to endure. Jesus prayed, as we see in Mark 14 and verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The word cup is used in the scripture as a metaphor of God's judgment. One example of this is in, in the Old Testament is in Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, where it says, But God is the judge. He puts, away, he puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. So the word cup is used as a metaphor for the judgment of God. So when Jesus prays to his Father to take this cup away from me, he is praying that God's judgment that places the guilt and punishment for all man's sin on him be taken away. He's praying that this judgment that places all this guilt of sin and punishment on him be taken away. The price or wages for sin is death, as we see in Romans 6, 23. And in Hebrews 2, verse 9, we see that Jesus tasted death for everyone. We also see in Isaiah 59 and verse 2 that our iniquities separate us from our God and our sins hide his face from us so that he will not hear. And in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, we see that the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, to fall on Christ. And also in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as the iniquity of all mankind was placed upon Jesus when he was crucified on the cross, he was separated from his father for the first time. He had never been separated from his father but he was going to be separated from his father, such that his father hid his face from him and would not hear his cry. 
And so we see Jesus on the cross crying out with a loud voice in Matthew 27 and verse 46 saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is approaching the turning point of all eternity. The responsibility of defeating Satan and making it possible for all mankind to be redeemed from their sins falls on him. He is the only one who can do it. And Jesus, deeply distressed and in agony as the weight of this grave responsibility crashes down upon him, is in deep, deep agony. And so it seems at this time that Jesus faces his greatest trial on this earth, here in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, in verse 38, it says, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Hebrews 5, in verse 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe we see the only time recorded in Scripture that the will of Jesus was not the same as the will of his Father. Jesus prays, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26 and verse, and this is in Matthew 26 and verse 39. And in Luke 22, 42, it says, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus prays this fervent prayer to his father three times while in the garden, as we see in Matthew and Mark's accounts. And in Hebrews 5, verse 7, it says that Jesus offered up these prayers with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And in Hebrews 5, verse 8, it says that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It was Jesus' will that this cup be removed from him. But this was not his father's will. But we see that Jesus always concludes his prayer with the statement, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Through all the agony and suffering that Jesus endured, Jesus never wavered in his desire and commitment to do the will of his Father. That never wavered, that he was going to do the will of his Father. He could have chosen to back out and not do the will of his Father, but he never wavered. In John 10, in John 10, let's see if I get that. Beginning in verse 17, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So this was a commandment that Jesus received from his father to lay down his life for the sheep. This was a commandment that God, his father, had given to Jesus. But Jesus had a choice. He could obey or disobey this command. He did not have to obey. He had a choice. But we see that he obeyed. He did the will of his father. Even though he desired that this, this cup be taken away, he still obeyed the will of his father. Hebrews 5 verse 8 says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In Mark the eighth chapter, when Jesus was teaching his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again, it says in Mark eight, it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So we see here in what Jesus says, what matters is what God wants. It doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what others in the world want or demand of me. What matters is what God wants. And Jesus makes it clear here. It didn't matter what he wanted. It mattered what his father wanted and desired. That's what matters. And if we're going to follow Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, that's one thing we need to learn. It doesn't matter what I want. What matters is what God wants. What is His will? And that's what I need to be doing. Not what I want to do, but what God wants me and desires that I do. And that's what we learn from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It doesn't matter what I want. What matters is what God wants, what the Father wants wants. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shows us that even when we fall to our knees, trembling and sweating profusely for fear of what is about to happen to us, we still say, not my will, but your will be done. Even when it's the most difficult thing we've ever done in our life, we still say, not my will, but thy will be done. In John 4 and verse 34, Jesus has, Jesus has just told his disciples that he has food to eat that they do not know about. And then in verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was the food of Jesus, was to do the will of the Father who sent him to this earth. That was his Food. That was why he, that was his purpose in coming to this earth. And just as Jesus was committed to doing the will of his Father, we must follow in his footsteps and have this same commitment today. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in 1 Peter, the second chapter, beginning in verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. And then in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 20, it says, Now the God of peace who brought up, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing to submit our will to the will of the Father? and let him work in us what is pleasing in his sight. Are you willing? Are you willing to submit your will to the will of the Father and let him work in you what is pleasing in his sight? That's the attitude that we are to have. Are you willing to suffer and sacrifice for the cause of Christ? 
If Jesus was willing to give up his place in heaven with his Father and come down to this earth and go through the extreme agony and suffering that he went through as he paid the price for our sins, then anything that we must give up or sacrifice in this life is trivial compared to what Jesus had to give up. There's nothing that we can give up in this life that can compare to what Jesus gave up for us. Taking the time to visit and take food to the sick and downtrodden, taking time to send cards to those who are suffering and need encouragement, digging into our bank account to help those who are going through hard times, reading and studying God's Word every day, praying every day and praying often, sharing the gospel with others, taking the time to prepare for that, and then taking the time to do it, putting forth the time and effort to lead a Bible class for an entire quarter, and possibly two quarters in succession, if that's required, taking the time to assemble with the saints to encourage and uplift one another as we worship our God at all the scheduled assemblies of the local church when physically, physically possible. Is that too much to sacrifice for our God? Are we willing to give up our time, give up our money to do these things? These things seem trivial. These things that we often claim to be hard or difficult seem trivial when compared to what Jesus gave up and endured for each one of us. When we answer the question, am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to let the Father come and work in me what is pleasing in His sight? When we answer that question, we need to ask, am I willing to give up my time for these things? Or, or am I too busy to do these things? When Jesus was in agony and deeply distressed, he prayed and he instructed his disciples to pray. Luke, the 22nd chapter, beginning in verse 39, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And after Jesus departed to pray the first time and returned to his disciples, it says in Matthew 26, in verse 40, Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then in Matthew 26, 32 through 35, and Mark 14, 27 through 31, right before Jesus and his disciples came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had told his disciples that they all would stumble and be scattered because of him that night. And we see that Peter replied by saying that even though all may fall away, yet I will not. That was a pretty bold statement on the part of Peter. And then Jesus tells Peter that before the cock crows that night, that Peter would deny him three times. And then Peter says that even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing as Peter. They all say that if we have to die with you, we will do that, but we will never deny you. So in the garden, after Jesus has told his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation, and he withdrew from them to pray, he comes back to them within the first hour to find them sleeping. They were not taking heed to the warning that Jesus gave them, and so were not prepared when the temptations came. So when Jesus finds them sleeping, he tells them to keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And we need to ask ourselves, are we taking heed to the warnings and examples that Jesus has given us? Are we preparing ourselves to be able to resist the schemes and temptations the devil will use to draw us away from following Jesus? Satan is like a roaring lion, a lion walking about seeking someone to, to devour, as we see in 1 Peter and verse 8. And in Ephesians 6, we see that the greatest defense against Satan and his schemes is taking on the full armor of God and praying always. 
In Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your, girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication with all the saints. So we, hear, we see here that Paul gives us the admonition that Jesus had given his disciples. And that is that we need to be praying and watching, watching and praying. We need to take on the whole armor of God. And then he concludes that by saying we need to be watching and praying to prepare for when those temptations come. Not if they will come, but when they come. Because they will come. And if we're not watching and praying, like Jesus' disciples were not watching and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, then we're not going to be prepared when those temptations come. And they were not prepared when the temptation came. Over the last few months, Bob has presented some excellent lessons on prayer. In one of the lessons, he showed how Jesus was constantly praying. Sewell Hall, in his book entitled, Jesus, Model of Manhood, has a chapter on the prayers of Jesus in which he shows the many examples of Jesus praying throughout his life on this earth. And it's clear, it's made clear that those who will follow Jesus, if we're following Jesus, then prayer will be an important element in our lives. In Luke, 20, in Luke 3, verse 21, we see Jesus praying at his baptism when entering his life's work. And in Luke 23, verse 46, we see him praying until, unto his father when dying on the cross. And we see him praying regularly and consistently throughout his life on this earth. And so anyone who follows in the footsteps of Jesus will be one who is praying often. And in Matthew 26 and verse 41, after Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation, he says, the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Often the spiritual battles we have with Satan occur within ourselves, in which our spirit wants to do what is right, but our flesh is struggling to comply. Paul describes this struggle between the spirit and the flesh in Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. We're not gonna look at that passage tonight. But we see this struggle between the spirit and the flesh occurring within the disciples of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They wanted to do right. But at the time that they were the most vulnerable to Satan, and when Jesus needed them the most, they couldn't stay awake and watch with Jesus for one hour. And what is the result of their failure to watch and pray for strength? Shortly thereafter, when Judas comes with a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders to seize Jesus, we see that all the disciples left him and fled. All of the disciples left him and fled. And this is what Jesus had told them would happen. They were not prepared for the temptations that came. And we all know the story of Peter denying Jesus three times when accused by the servant girls and bystanders of being one of his disciples, just as Jesus had foretold would occur just a few hours before. Truly, the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And I believe we see this struggle between the spirit and the flesh also occurring within Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus said to his disciples, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, he understood and knew exactly what this felt like because he was experiencing that himself. He knew what that struggle between the spirit and the flesh felt like. He had felt it. He was feeling it there in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Hebrews 4, 
In verse 14 it says, Seeing then that we have a, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just Jesus was in all points, in every way, tempted as we are. But what did Jesus do when he was tempted with this struggle between the spirit and the flesh? We see in Luke 22, verses 42 through 44, it says that he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so we see that an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And so even though an angel from heaven may not appear to us today so that we can physically see an angel helping us as we pray to our Father for strength during temptation, God will provide us with the help that we need when we go to him in prayer for help. We can be assured of that. Just as he strengthened Jesus in his time of need, he will give us strength in our time of need. And so if we are watching and praying, and we're praying for strength during time of temptation, then God is going to give us strength. He's going to help us in those times that we're tempted. But we need to be watching and praying. We need to heed the warnings that the Lord has given us that we see within his word and within the examples that we see. So let's conclude the lesson tonight by noting how Jesus addresses his father when he prays to him in the garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14 in verse 36, it says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Here Jesus addresses God as Abba, Father. This was a term of great intimacy for God. It is how a child would speak to his father. As far as we know, this is the first time that we have recorded, the first time that we know that a Jew addressed God in this way. A Jew would consider speaking to God in this way as being too casual, too informal, and too intimate, and would not condone speaking to the Almighty God in this way, in this manner. But in this hour of greatest sorrow, in his hour of greatest sorrow, Jesus addresses his father in this very special way and shows us that through him and what he is about to do on the cross, he is making it possible for all of us to enjoy a special, intimate relationship with God and invites us all to call on the father in this same way. See this in Galatians, the fourth chapter. In verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So in other words, through Jesus, we as sons have an intimate relationship with the Father, and just as Jesus addressed his father as Abba, Father. He now invites all of us who have become sons of God through him to call upon God in the same way. So in that hour of darkness and sorrow, when our world has been turned upside down and we fall down on our knees and cry out to God and wonder if he is hearing us, we can be assured that not only does he hear us, but he loves us so much that he invites us to come to him and talk to him as a son talks to his loving father with the assurance that he will always hear us and will always help us in our time of need. He's always going to be there with us when we call unto our loving father, just as he helped Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. So let us all seek to follow Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. We learn so much by how Jesus 
how he, what he said and what he did in this garden. So let us follow Jesus into the garden of Gethsemane by taking on the mind and attitude of Jesus when he submitted to his Father's will, even when it required him to endure the greatest agony and suffering known to man. There's no greater example of suffering and self-sacrifice for the sake of others and in submission to the will of our Father in heaven. Let us heed the admonition of Paul in Philippians, the second chapter, beginning in verse 5, where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, when it says that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, it means that he did not consider being equal with God something that he could not give up for the good of others. And if Jesus could give up being equal with God to serve us, there's nothing we possess in this life that we should not be willing to give up to submit to the will of our Father. So let us follow in the footsteps of Jesus and submit and do the will of our Father in heaven. If there are any here tonight who have a desire to be born again by, by believing and confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of your sins and being baptized for the remission of your sins, or if you have already been born again by doing these things, but have a need to confess your sins publicly and ask for the prayers of the brethren here, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.